but to your name be the glory. That's our focus this morning as we seek to open our hearts to learn of you. To be reminded, Lord, of who we are in your presence. That you are everything and more than we could ever fathom or imagine. We thank you that you are a holy God and that you allow us through the full finished work of Jesus to be in communion with you. To gather on your day in your house with your people to hear your word. Lord, I pray and plead for help that everything that is said and done would be for your honor and glory. I thank you, Lord, for this body. I thank you, Lord, that we together strive to be faithful in everything that we say and do. I thank you, Lord, for the wonderful testimony of Krista, the way that you've used her and her team to be a light in a really dark place. Father, we thank you as well for the way that I've witnessed just this past week this body minister to our dear brother Bill Stankowitz. We, Lord, stand before you and just give you praise for protecting and preserving his life. We thank you for the prayers that have gone up. We pray, Lord, for patience in the healing process and that he would be restored to full strength so that he can continue to serve you as that's his heart's desire. Father, I would ask right now that you would allow the Spirit to examine the very crevices of our heart, to reveal to us the areas of unholiness that need to be addressed or confessed. And I pray, Lord, that you would mark this moment in our lives, a learning moment, a monumental moment that we've heard and seen you. May you be glorified. We ask this in the strong and wonderful name of our Savior, the Messiah, Jesus. Amen and amen. <clears throat> it, is, it is the first week of August. It's August already. Kids' school is around the corner. There's a groan, not from the kids, but from the teachers that are amongst us this morning. So it's August, we've, we've got to kind of pick the pace up just a little bit. We started our study in 1 Samuel chapter 16, by way of just a real quick, David, remember, is chosen from amongst his older brothers, anointed by Samuel. He steps up, he steps out in faith and kills this menacing giant, Goliath. Saul, the king at the time, is jealous of David and hunts him down. And David runs for his life. Facing what? Despair and discouragement, depression in the cave of Adullam. Later we learn that, that, that David extends grace to Saul, who doesn't even deserve it. In the cave in Engedi. Lord willing, we've been able to learn what, just like David, that we struggle with anger like David did when he was what? Given problems with a... With a man by the name of Nabal. We too, like David, struggle with rejection. When David's own men turned on him. Wanted him dead. Wanted to stone him. It has been a tough journey. It's a tough life for many of us. But God is still in charge. God is still 
sovereign over everything and everyone, and in his perfect agenda, he always, always, always fulfills his promises. 1 Samuel ends, it closes with the death of King Saul on the battlegrounds. 2 Samuel opens with David finally at age 30. Ten years he's been on the run. He now ascends to the throne. David is now king of Israel. That's where we pick up the narrative He knows what? That the Israelites are God's chosen people. However, under Saul's leadership, under Saul's reign, they have not been living like that. So David's going to do things differently. There's a new sheriff in town, so to speak. All the focus, all the attention is going to be what put on the Lord where it belongs. David very quickly establishes Jerusalem as the capital. And the first thing that he wants to do is bring the Ark of the Covenant, that which represents the very presence of God, back to the people. The Ark of the Covenant, we have to go all the way back. Think about this. Long time ago, 1981, Harrison Ford with Raiders of the Lost Ark. Actually, we have to go back further than that. Let's set the stage. Let's remember what? Creation first. The fall of mankind. Adam and Eve fall into sin. The flood, a promise that is given. Abraham is chosen. His son Isaac, then Jacob, then 12 tribes, 12 sons. End up in Egypt in bondage. Moses is what? Chosen to lead. The Passover is given by way of instruction. And there is an amazing escape as the Red Sea parts. In Exodus chapter 25 and Exodus chapter 26, as the Israelites are wandering through the wilderness, they have been given very specific instructions to build a tabernacle. The tabernacle is what? It's an elaborate tent. It's a portable sanctuary of sorts. It's a place of worship. The inner portion of the tabernacle is referred to as the Holy of Holies. And inside the Holy of Holies, there is instruction in Exodus chapter 25 of the Ark of the Covenant that is to be built. The finest carpenter ever, Bezalel is his name, is commissioned to build the Ark of the Covenants. It is what? It is... Simply a box, a wooden box made of acacia wood. It's four feet long, it's two feet high, two feet wide. It's covered in gold. On the lid, there's two cherubim that are facing each other. There's very specific instruction, Exodus chapter 25, that says this by way of the constructing of it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet. Two rings on the one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. On the inside and on the outside it had four rings placed And on the side of the ark, the poles were placed through the ring so that the ark could be carried on the shoulders of the priests. 
The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. We know in Hebrews chapter 9, it tells us the contents of the ark. The ark contained a gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had but it, and the stone tablets of the covenants, or the law. And the ark symbolized the divine presence, the very glory of God. Now it's important for us to remember, remind you this morning, that the top of the lid, the top of the ark, is called the mercy seat. And one day a year, the day of atonement, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. Think about this for a moment. On the inside are what? The tablets, the law. On top of them was the mercy seat. When people sin, the law is broken, which required judgment, which always required payments. The blood sprinkled would activate, in a sense, the mercy of God. Mercy always triumphs over judgments. The Israelites literally carry the ark for 40 years in the wilderness. Under Joshua, he had had the priest, what, carry it across the Jordan into the promised land. Placed in the tabernacle in Shiloh. It was never to be separated, this, this sacred piece of furniture, from the tabernacle. However, under Saul's reign, under Saul's charge, in direct disobedience, the Israelites actually at one point carried the ark into battle as a good luck charm, so to speak. It was not intended to be a weapon. It was for worship. And we know that the ark was captured and God very promptly, quickly judged the Philistines with sickness and disease and death so that they actually just gave it back. They brought it back to the inhabitants of Kirith-Jerim about nine miles outside, just south of Jerusalem. And it sat there literally for 20 years. This is where we pick up the story. David, new king. Desires for the ark to be brought into the permanent capital. He gathers together 30,000 men and with great celebration and song. Let's pick up the story in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 1. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. And David and all of the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and with lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it. For the oxen stumbled 
And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of God. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittites. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all of his household. Now there are texts of scripture that we struggle with. Text of scripture that, that I struggle with, and this is one of them. A very quick summary, at, at, at quick glance, what? It seems like we have a good guy, Uzzah, doing apparently a good thing. He's just, just steadying the ark so it doesn't tumble. And yet what? He ends up dead. God is angry. David is angry, and this whole party just quickly goes to pot. What was at one moment a celebration literally turns into a funeral procession. As we read this story, as we hear this read, it's almost like, it's like there's some part of it that, that we miss. It's like we're jumping into a story that has already been flowing and doesn't make sense to us. It's just not fair. A good guy does a good thing. The first question I present to you this morning is this. Who determines the good thing? The creator or creation? Two points I want to give to you this morning. The first one is this. Holiness matters because it sets the creator apart from creation. Let me repeat that. Holiness matters today because it sets the creator apart from creation. Now, every single one of us, we all love a God of love. We all love a God of mercy. We all love a God of kindness and a God of grace. We all love a God of forgiveness. Let me remind you that we cannot, we cannot and we will never understand his mercy and his forgiveness until we first get a grip on the holiness of God. Holiness is defined as this, to be dedicated, to be consecrated, to be set apart for a certain purpose. Holiness means to be pure, unmixed, sacred. Now, our comprehension, our understanding of the holiness of God based on the natural senses that he has given to us, I think in all honesty, are simply insufficient. We simply cannot fully comprehend the holiness of God. Isaiah testifies that, that in Isaiah chapter 6. 
In uh, Exodus chapter 15, Moses asked this question. Who, who, who among the gods, lowercase g, who among the gods is like you, O Lord, Yahweh? Who, who is, who is, who's out there that is anything like you? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is what? Obviously, no. No one is like you. There never has been, there never will be anyone like you. The holiness of God means that God is above, he is separate, he is set apart from everything by which he has created. This means that everything that is associated with God becomes holy. Exodus chapter 19 God descends to Mount Sinai, demonstrating his power and his holiness and his glory. Ground shook, lightning, flash, thunder, rocked and roared. And God warned anyone who touches that mountain, that entire mountain will be put to death with the exception of Moses and Aaron. Mount Sinai was set apart, what? As holy grounds. God's name is holy. You realize when some of the priests were given job description as scribes to copy portions of the Old Testament. When they literally, when they got to the word Yahweh, when they were writing and they got to this word L-O-R-D, we read in our language, they would stop before they wrote that word Lord. They would stop. They put down their pen. They would go and they would literally strip off everything. They would wash themselves, put on new clothes, come back, pick up a pen that has never been used before to write those four letters that represented. They couldn't even write all the entire word. It was so holy. They wrote that one word. They'd stop. They would go. They would literally wash everything, put on another set of clothes, go back and continue on. The name of God is that holy. You know, there's actually a day that has been set apart from every other day of the week. It's referred to as the Lord's Day. God says what? I want you to work six days. I want you to take this one day and I want you to set it apart. Literally, one of the Ten Commandments was what? Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Today, in a culture of casualness, all of this seems so foreign to us. Really, like, like changing clothes before we write the name. It just seems so distant. But thankfully, God in his holiness loved his creation enough to offer himself, Jesus, the only perfect holy one who came to this earth perfectly sinless, left the glory and the splendor, to the muck and the mire and the stink and the stench of a stable. And through his death, the atoning work on the cross, 
by us having faith in the finished work of Jesus, we as unholy creatures can actually have a relationship with the absolute holy one. Can't get the scene out of my head, Matt read in Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 4, we have the angels who are before the throne singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. There's little doubt that David thought that he was doing the right thing here. He was bringing the Ark of the Covenant back to where it belongs. He was doing the right thing thing but he was doing it in the wrong way god gave very specific instructions for moving the ark numbers chapter 7 verse 9 the priests were charged with the service of the holy things that had to be carried on the shoulder yet david at some level chooses to do things his way the same way that you and i know the truth of the word of god and we oftentimes choose to what live life our way our way. And just like David, we live with what dangerous, damaging, destructive repercussions. We've all heard this, what? You don't, you don't need to work harder. You just need to work smarter. I mean, is that like a, is that like a commercial line somewhere? You don't have to work harder, just work smarter. Apparently, that's not a new idea because someone in David's day apparently said, hey, I got an idea here. Nine plus miles, we've got to carry this. They estimate with the amount of gold that the Ark of Covenant weighed about 575 pounds. 575 pounds. So rather than wearing out the priests, they're good guys. I got an idea. Let's build a brand new, the best that we can do, ox cart. Let's put like shiny spinners on the side of it so that when people see it, they're like, wow, that's holy. Who determines a good thing? The creator or creation? What we need to remember is that mankind as creation, as creature does not have authority over the creator. Therefore, we cannot, just like David could not, we cannot make the rules. We cannot call the shots. David, no doubt, was God's man. This does not mean that David was God. He certainly had power. He certainly had authority. And he was used to directing and instructing. And people did what David told them to do. But God does not work like that. He is the final authority. He is sovereign in his reign and in his rule. It's important for us to learn this because it affects our view. There's a story in scripture here that we just read that we can wrestle with. And yet it actually is there for a purpose to give us a glimpse of what God means when he speaks and describes about his own holiness. And so Uzzah reminds us this morning, we must, we must, we must keep a high and a holy view of God and his word. The late R.C. Sproul in his classic work, The Holiness of God, says this, and I quote, 
It was an act of arrogance. A sin of presumption. Uzzah assumed that his hand was less polluted than the earth. But it wasn't the grounds or mud that would desecrate the ark. It was the touch of man. God did not want his holy throne touched by that which was contaminated by evil. That which was in rebellion to him. Let's pick up the narrative here. We pick it up in verse 12. 2 Samuel chapter 6. And it was told... It was told to King David that the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all of his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all of the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. You know, it seems impossible at some level for us as unholy people to be in presence and fellowship with a holy God. It seems impossible for us to be obedient to scripture. In 1 Peter, it says what? You and I are to be holy as God is holy. How do we do that? Apparently, David gives us an example here because he hears about the house of Obed-Edom that is being blessed and he stopped sulking in anger and he finally obeyed. He finally what? Brought the ark into Jerusalem the proper way. This is where obedience comes in. If David would have been obedient in the first place, Uzzah wouldn't be dead. If David would have been obedient in the first place, they would have had three more months of blessing. I want to remind you what? Holiness, as we pursue this, leads us to obedience. We hear much today about God desires relationships with us and not religion. That, that is very, very true. But people mistakenly confuse that and actually add to that. That say that God is interested only in relationships but not in rules. Now that sounds really, really good. Especially when people falsely teach us or tell us that following rules will get you to heaven. We know that's not true. But God is what? God is very interested in rules. That's hard for us. God is very interested in our obedience. Rules matter. Friday afternoon, a young man and I were golfing. A course that we'd never been to before. And so we're kind of unfamiliar. And so we're giving instructions to the first tee box. Beautiful day, beautiful afternoon. If you know anything about golf, sometimes getting off that first drive is a little challenging. People watching. Put our ball up, tee it up. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful drive right off. 
It's one of those days. You know it's going to be one of those days. Things just feel good. He puts up his ball. He tees it off. Beautiful drive. We look, we smile, and just as we're about to, to go back to our car to continue, someone kind of drives up next to us and says, hey, like, what are you guys doing? Are you, like, hitting a practice ball? I'm like, no, sir, this is, like, this is the way I play. And he goes, you do know that you just hit the ball into the 18th fairway where they're coming up. You're supposed to tee the ball this way. <laughs> you know how embarrassing it is to... Thank you. And we just put a ball down. And Now think about that for a moment. Well, we could have said, yeah, we're just going to play the entire course backwards. No, it, it doesn't work like that. You have to play according to the rules. God actually established rules for holiness. It's called the law. In particular, it's called the Ten Commandments. The first five, what? All focus on God himself. And so we are to give attention to the instruction, to the rule of law that God has given to us. Let's examine them very quickly. Number one, do not have any other God before the one true God. Right there, there, right there is where a lot of us automatically, we can just take that exit right there because we already blew it. There's a lot of things that are vying for our attention that we give more thought and attention to in the course of a day or course of a week than we do a holy God. And that's the first commandment. The second one says what? Don't make any graven image of me. God, God's holiness is not going to be represented with some emaciated crucifix somewhere. It's not proper. It's not right. It's not respectful. It's certainly not holy. Do not bow down. Do not worship anything, anyone, other than one true God. Do not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. You see a funny joke. You see a post or a tweet that captures your attention and too many times I see a horrific response OMG you realize the flippancy that exists in our world today what do you talk about remember the Lord's day remember the Sabbath day set this day apart from every other day God has given to us the Ten Commandments. And they're important for us because what we are instructed in the Word of God. 1 John chapter 2, by this we know that we have come to know Him. If we keep His commandments. This is New Testament grace. And yet it gives very specific instruction that we are known by the way that we live our lives. Different and unique, set apart and separate. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. John chapter 14, verse 23. Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me. Yeah. Oh yeah, I love Jesus. Jesus loves me. I love Jesus. Well, Jesus said, if you love me, if anyone loves me, he will keep 
my word. He will give attention to and be obedient to. We prove our love to one another. By faithfulness of commitments. Husbands and wives, think about the fact that we prove our love for our spouse by being obedient to the rule that says do not commit adultery, which means be faithful. This is a demand of sexual fidelity as long as you both shall live. This doesn't pervert marriage. What does it do? It lifts it up. It esteems it. It protects it. Promotes it. It preserves marriage. And it's a rule. It's a law. You realize in the same way, God's commands, God's rules, God's law are actually given to us as a means of grace so that we can grow in our holiness and in our godliness and in our love and our affection. Don't despise well, Christians are just so narrow-minded. They just have to live in such a box. No, a gift of God's grace. He allows us, instructs us how to live in obedience and holiness. Holiness leads to obedience. Finally, holiness leads us to be more like Christ. I began this morning, I said, we cannot understand God's mercy. We cannot fully understand God's forgiveness until we first get a grip on his holiness. And today we see that in a simple lesson. It says a guy touches something that he's not supposed to touch and God kills him. We know as we seek what holiness we're more and more reminded of the fact that we are simply not that. And our intentions oftentimes fall flat. Our righteousness, as Isaiah writes, is like a filthy, dirty, soiled, spoiled rag. The best that we can do. And we know in the truth of what Scripture says that we deserve God's wrath. We deserve God's punishments as a result of our sin. But I love this, I love this. But God, in John chapter 1, became flesh and dwelt among us. It says in verse 14, And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace, full of truth. And Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 2 of how Christ, what, emptied Himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself, listen to this, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. You realize that we have an example in the Lord Jesus Christ. Every single day we can go into his word and say, how did, how did he handle it? How should we handle it? Great little book, Kevin DeYoung wrote, The Whole in Our Holiness. He says this, and I quote, We see in Jesus the best, most practical, most human example of what it means to be holy. So just as the Lord Jesus Christ humbled himself, became obedient, we are to be as well. Why? Because obedient reflects our desire to be holy as God is holy. 
Now think about it. Whatever we do here, we do for the glory of God. If we are to live and be a church that exists for the glory of God, if we are to be a church, if we are to be identified as families within this church and one big family that is obedient to Scripture, if we're going to be a church that doesn't just play church, but we are going to be obedient to fulfill the Great Commission, to go into all the world and make disciples, if we're going to do that, if we're going to live our lives in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, if we are going to be light and salt and impact our community. Let me tell you this, our lives, your life and my life better look different than everyone in this world. It better look different. Be holy as I am holy. If we are called with that type of a commission, why is it that we barely make our way into the Word of God every single morning? We read a verse. Hopefully it makes me feel okay to get through the day. Are you serious? Why, why, why is it that we treat Sunday... It's, it's just my day. I just need my time. It's just my time. Everyone has to stay away. And I get one day just to sleep in, just to rest. What, why is it that we continue to long for the pleasures of this world? Why is it that we continue to long for the acceptance of this world? Why is it that we continue to hunger and thirst for the comforts and conveniences of this world rather than living as those who what are living sacrifices, denying themselves in every way? Why is it we give more concern for the acceptance out there rather than what? A desire to be humbly and obedient in the presence of a holy God. Why is that? Why is it that today, the church of Jesus Christ, particularly younger people, they say, are accepting what? Whatever the world says. You want to sleep together before you get married? Everyone else does it. You Christians are so old-fashioned. Why is it that what? I can't believe that you guys haven't, haven't jumped on two men living together, want to be married, they're in a committed, monogamous relationship, Celebrate that. No, I'm sorry, that's disobedience. Why is it that, that little twinges of white lies and we fudge figures and numbers? Why is it that we live like that this morning as we get tiny little glimpse into the holiness of God? Why doesn't that remind us to long for obedience, to seek to live and look as God himself looks, just like Jesus? There was a church that was struggling by allowing things to creep into it that should not have been there, like much of the church of Jesus Christ today. And Paul writes this to the church at Corinth in chapter 6, verse 17, Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, and then I will welcome you. Well, being separate, that's just old-fashioned. That's just, no, 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 actually, we are to look different and to live different than everyone else in this world. 
we close this morning, let me remind you to do two things. The first one is this. Just take time to ponder. Throughout the rest of this day. This is the Lord's day. This is the Lord's hour or two. Take some time today. Escape into creation. Take your wife. Take your family. Dads. On your knees. Confess. Areas where we fall short. Take time to ponder and think about God's true holiness and awesomeness in the very sense and depth of the meaning of that word. Secondly, take time to praise. Lift up our voices as we will do in just a moment. Thank the Lord for offering his own son as a sacrifice. As a means of us being in relationship, unholy creation. Yet we get to, we get to because of this grace and gift of Jesus being in relationship with a holy God. Take time to ponder and take time to praise on the subject of God's holiness. Father, we love you and we fall desperately short. Thank you, Lord, for your word that teaches us, your spirit that illuminates. Allow us, Lord, not to be hearers only, but doers of the word. We confess and admit that we need your strength to do that. But God, we ask for that now. We ask this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.